1: Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, I take you to the Sydney Mini Maker Fair. But first up, here's the news. The NBN petition has been delivered. On Tuesday, November 26th, people around Australia delivered petitions to their Members of Parliament asking for the National Broadband Network, the NBN, to be built as fibre to the premises in line with world communication standards. The outgoing Labour government had started the building of a new national optic fibre network to replace the 100-year-old copper network that most lucky Australians find stops working when it rains. And some unlucky Australians never got connected to in the first place. It often stops working when it rains because most of it was laid before plastic was invented, so it's poorly insulated. The new coalition government says it will only build fibre to node boxes in streets and then slow the signal right down by connecting the node boxes to the old copper network to reach homes and businesses. A network is only as fast as its slowest link, so the copper effectively slows down the entire new fibre optic network down to its slowest speed. And when it rains, the copper part of the network will go down again, cutting people off from the new infrastructure as if it had never been built. The petition of over 270,000 signatures was handed to the Liberal National Communications Minister Malcolm Turnbull and ministers at 144 marginal seats in an attempt to change his mind about keeping people's houses connected exclusively to Telstra's copper network. The petition is the largest ever hosted by Change.org. The petition was started by self-confessed Liberal voter and Queensland business student Nick Payne. Wentworth residents from the NBN supporter group delivered the petition to the Edgecliff office of Malcolm Turnbull. Wentworth resident Vladimir Lasky said we're sending a strong message to the communications minister Malcolm Turnbull that he needs to start listening to the Australian people. The NBN is the most critical infrastructure project in Australia right now and it needs to be built right to unlock the growth of Australia's information economy, education and R&D capabilities. Fibre to the node will turn Australia into a telecommunications backwater and make it a much less attractive place for business. The presence of large, ugly cabinets littering our streets will be a lingering monument to our folly of accepting this inferior architecture. Delivery of the petition was organised through the NBN Defender website, which asked for your postcode in order to send you to the Facebook event page organising the delivery of the petition to your local Member of Parliament. Nick Payne said there's a real depth of feeling about this issue in the community and Mr Turnbull would do well to take heed of this sentiment. Malcolm Turnbull has previously responded to this petition by saying that he wouldn't walk away from one of the coalition's most well-debated, well-understood and prominent policies. Malcolm Turnbull has been accused of rejecting the idea of democratic debate outside of elections when he responded to a Twitter user with Wasn't there an election recently which NBN policy was a key issue? In 2012, the American House and Senate abandoned the Stop Online Piracy Act and the Protect IP Act because of the 4.5 million signature petition against the laws from Google, and the concurrent internet blackout. Online commentators have pointed out that 4.5 million is about the same fraction of the US population of voters as 270,000 of the Australian population of voters. So it's a comparable petition. Malcolm Turnbull has placed the Telstra boss from 11 years ago, Ziggy Switkowski, in charge of the NBN. Ziggy was the man responsible for secretly signing over Australians' telephone data to the American FBI and allowing American phone taps in direct violation of Australia's privacy laws. The NBN is opposed by Telstra, which owns a monopoly on the old copper network. Under the new coalition government, Telstra will get to keep the compensation for getting their copper network replaced with fibre while still being able to collect rent on their monopoly on the old copper network slowing the whole country down and stopping whenever it rains. Here's Vlad Vlaski on IT News.
2: There's a few terms i have been using in the media to describe the concept of fibre to the premises NVN. And they have called it a Rolls-Royce NVN. And I think this is a perfect symbol of the type of broadband network we need across the country, seeing that it performs very well and something that does not break down. But if they want to give it a name like that, I'd also like to come up with a name for the alternative. The red Rattler M B N. Red was the colour of those old trains that used to run on in the city network until the late 80s. These trains look very old they're all decrepit you know and so it is symbolic of something that has passed it's used by date. Turnbull has already been dismissive about the petition in the past we just have to show that it's not a passing fad we just have to keep keep mentioning it keep bringing it up try and lobby other politicians to our cause lobby Tony Abbott You know, just make it clear that, you know, we're not going to forget people care about our national infrastructure. People aren't going to be complacent about this.
1: Could surveillance resurrect the dead? Google have patented software that scans the online archives of all your emails, text messages, web searches and social network status updates to be able to post status updates as if it were you. It would also respond to messages from friends and family as if it were you. The software asks you to approve every time it decides on a message to send and flags when it thinks it can't predict how you'd respond yet. It will continue to observe you and learn to better predict you and copy you. All that tracking and surveillance you've been hearing about? They're just trying to get a copy of you for their very own. The Google patent is called Automatic Generation of Content Recommendations Weighted by Social Network Context. The filing date is 2006, even though the publication date is 2013. The social network context means they have to examine your history of interactions with everyone you've ever spoken with online to determine who they can pretend to talk with on your behalf in the future. The pattern says the idea comes from the failure of recommendation software to accurately recommend videos, links, books, and music, and other people that you are really interested in. We already have publicists and teams of writers ghostwriting some celebrities' Facebook and Twitter messages, so there's at least a little demand. ...for outsourcing our online utterances. Lots of apps and websites already demand your permission... ...for them to update your status without your intervention. And too many apps demand a copy of all your contacts off your phone. What does Google Maps need all my phone numbers and email addresses for? The Turing test was proposed by Alan Turing, father of computing... ...as a test of whether or not a computer is as intelligent as a human. The test is for someone to have a conversation in text with someone they can't see. If they decide that they're having a conversation with a human, when they're actually talking with software, then that software passes the Turing test. This means the software is as intelligent as a human, as far as we can tell, because talking with people is the only test we have for how intelligent humans are. But what about software that not only presents itself as intelligent, but also fools people that it is a specific person with particular history, experience, thoughts and memories that it definitely doesn't have. If it has no inner life but acts as if it did, we'd call it a philosophical zombie. In 1976, Frederick Pohl wrote the novel Gateway, which as a small part of the story featured self-aware software that used all of Albert Einstein's published works to recreate his personality. The artificial intelligence felt itself to be Albert Einstein, even though it knew its memories were fake and that it was a historical reconstruction. In 1999, the TV series Harsh Realm was about a military simulation of the world where the simulations of people were so accurate that they didn't know that they and their world were simulations. In 2004, in his novel Accelerando, Charles Stross suggested that superhuman artificial intelligences in the future may be able to create people who closely resemble dead historical figures based on how they would behave from their letters, books and online sayings. In January 2013, Tom Scott created a YouTube video titled When Facebook Resurrected the Dead, which is about Facebook doing exactly what Google has done. In February 2013, Charlie Brooker released an episode of his TV series Black Mirror, called Be Right Back, about a woman grieving her dead husband who uses a service that not only takes all of his online status updates and emails and texts, but also all of his phone calls to create a simulation that she can phone up and chat with. Every time this simulation behaves differently to how the real man would have, she tells it off and it corrects itself. It's a very creepy story. Google may not have quite enough information to build software that can predict what you would say and what you would decide, and they certainly don't have all your phone calls recorded. But the NSA and their allies do. Facebook, Google and the NSA are building such comprehensive data warehouses of our every phone call, video, photos and everything we say and do in public that they could ultimately use the Google software to build models of anyone and simulate what we would say in response to questions they'd like to ask us or how we'd react to ultimatums they'd like to give us or products they'd like to market us, decisions they'd like to persuade us to make, agreements they'd like us to think were our own idea and elections they'd like us to vote for. The upside is that the same data might be used to resurrect realistic copies of us. If you call a copy of how you'd behave that contains no information about what you really remember, feel and think, a resurrection. Here's Tom Scott's When
3: Facebook Resurrected the Dead. When Facebook claimed they could resurrect the dead, the world laughed. But Facebook were entirely serious. The technology was proprietary, they said, but the details leaked out soon enough. They took a copy of every digital trace of you, every email in your archive, every photo and video you took or appeared in, every web page you visited, every keystroke you typed, your location history, social network history, everything built up over decades. The people who'd grown up with the internet were in their 40s and 50s now, and their old data was still in the systems. From there, Facebook built up a model, petabytes and exabytes in size, that could approximate the way you'd respond. It wasn't a quick or easy process, but it worked. The technology came from a company that wanted to design virtual assistants, something for people who received too much email. Who better to trust your email to than yourself? The trouble was this. The models received the input, updated themselves, and spat out a vaguely coherent set of sentence fragments and concepts in reply. That had to be typed up into English by remote translators, and then that text had to be run through the model again so the vocabulary and grammar would match the original person. So as virtual assistants, they were slow and expensive, and anyone with the money and need would just, well, hire an actual assistant instead. Facebook originally bought the company with the hope of automatically testing reactions to targeted adverts, and then some bright spark realised that the original subject didn't need to be alive anymore. This was their proposal. After you died, your friends and relatives could still send you messages. They could ask for advice, send updates on their lives, and just talk. And the model would send a reply after an hour or two, and it would be pretty much indistinguishable from you. It'd be as if you were on another continent and only had access to email. And every now and then, just to make sure that they were solvent, it'd drop in a product placement or two. The reaction was predictable outrage, shock, jokes on late night talk shows. A few years later, though, it had become mainstream. Like online dating at the start of the century, it had stopped being something that weirdos do, and instead something that got advertised on billboards. Lots of companies offered it. The first posthumously written album by a simulated Michael Jackson went straight to number one. The lawsuit over who gets the royalties is still ongoing. Hapless romantics falling in love with models of the deceased is already a topic on the tabloid talk shows. In Kentucky, a church is using a slower, open-source version of the modelling system and feeding it the New Testament in the hope that they can resurrect Jesus and bring about the second coming. And tomorrow, an engineer from Facebook is going to receive a bug report from one of the translators. One of the most complicated and busy models of a US Supreme Court judge that provides useful, expert legal advice received a question about human rights. It's pieced together a dozen concepts and in response has claimed that it's conscious, that it's alive, and that it wants the vote. That's when things will really start getting weird.
1: The video is embedded on this week's show notes on DiffusionRadio.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, hosted by me, Ian Wolfe. Sent emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now we visit the first Sydney Mini Maker Fair, held at the Powerhouse Museum. I took lots of photos and recorded a bunch of interviews before I had to run away for an afternoon screening of The Day of the Doctor. I could easily have stayed a few more hours and recorded a dozen more interviews, but the doctor waits for no one. 3D printing was very big at the fair, even with the kids. I noticed Julian at the stand for 3D printer workshops and saw him and his family around the fair. Julian is 10 and uses the Linux operating system to program in Python, plays with a Raspberry Pi computer, and spoke to me about making 3D models. So, can you tell me your name, please? Julian. And Julian... You make things in 3D, well, you design things in 3D?
4: Yes, I do.
1: And what do you do?
4: Um, I've made, I've designed a couple. Well, I've started trying to make a chess piece and it's gone pretty well. And I make, I'm starting to make one of the hands of one of my favorite plastic models to put together
1: awesome and what are you designing these in?
4: Uh, Lots of different softwares. First I got into SketchUp and then my dad went to a work course and he told me about SolidWorks so we got the free 30-day trial and then I've searched up found on the internet 3D printing softwares. It said the best softwares for 3D drawing and I installed K3D and my best friend at school he uses Blender
1: Blender's um, a bit hard to use have you managed to use it?
4: No yeah, I'm
1: trying to u- learn it myself and so when did you start playing with these things?
4: Um, I started in SketchUp a year ago maybe or a bit further back
1: And how old are you? Ten. Ten. And so are you looking forward to actually printing them in 3D?
4: Yes, I am. Does it give you more ideas? Yes, and I've found out about the Cube 3D printer, the cheap one. Cheap, small, compact.
1: So you're looking forward to getting one of those?
4: I would like to, yes.
1: Well, thank you very much.
4: That's okay. Thank you
1: there was a life-sized humanoid robot made of plastic that was responding to voice commands. So I spoke to one of its makers.
5: Hi, so I'm Chris Furman and I'm here with uh, Joel Hackett who's uh, built the uh, InMove 3D printed life-sized robot. You can download the plans for this project online and anyone can uh, print it with their 3D printer at home. It requires around 25 different servo motors. Uh, Mm -hmm. All the plastic for the robot you can uh, print yourself. Uh, And it runs on uh, Andorino microcontrollers as well. So...
1: What's the website for them to have a look at the plans?
5: Uh, best if you just Google InMove, um, because there's quite a few different parts to the project. So It's I-N-M-O-O-V. Mm-hmm.
1: And how much does it cost in plastic filament to print this all out?
5: Um, yeah, so you're looking at the printer we've used, the MakerBot, uh, is about $2,500. Uh, mm-hmm. We've used around four kilos oh. Oh. of uh, plastic, and it's about $40 a kilo at the moment. So, uh, you know, you can print the total project, including the motors, for probably under $1,000. Yeah, including the cost of your printer as well.
1: And did you design the robot?
5: No. So the robot's designed um, mm-hmm. by a chap in the US, uh, and he's released all of the uh, the plans online for free to the community, open source. So anyone can uh, anyone can print this. And are you with a uh, you're with InMove? Yeah. No, no, we're just uh, we're just some hobbyists who've downloaded mm-hmm. it and uh, and printed it out and built a copy of the robot. So we're here to show it off today at the Maker Fair.
1: Do you make all this stuff at home or are you with a group of hobbyists?
5: Uh, yes, yeah, so we just made it at home ourselves, yeah, in our spare time essentially. That's, that's great, thanks very much.
1: Thanks very much for your time. There was a big cube being made ready to be launched into orbit.
6: Uh, my name's Stuart Bartlett and I'm with UNSW BlueSat.
1: And tell me about the BlueSat project.
6: Uh, the BlueSat project is a student undergraduate satellite project. We've been working at UNSW for the last 10 years, constructing what is, the first, as far as we know, the world's first entirely undergraduate designed and built satellite. Wow. And how big would the satellite be? Um, it's Right now, the current design is a small aluminum box. It's about 25 centimeters on a side cube. And so inside there, we have a computer to handle all the power and data. We have batteries and solar panels to keep the thing alive. And then we have a radio to communicate with the ground and tell us what it's doing and what the experiments inside are telling us. And what
1: sort of experiments are you sending up?
6: Right now, our design doesn't have an experiment built into it. It has a tray, which provides power in and information out. And now the university has several experiments. They're still trying to decide which one they'd like to put inside.
1: And where will you be launching this when it's ready?
6: Unfortunately, we're not at that stage yet. We probably, we would be talking to American or Russian launch providers we're, right now, our big goal is to do a balloon test somewhere in western New South Wales, and that will take the satellite up to about 35 kilometres. It will be on a helium balloon, and so that will it'll get very cold, it'll have very low temperatures, and it'll simulate space conditions very well. And that way we'll be able to see how the satellite does in su- close to space without having to actually send it up there. If, if that goes well, then we'll be looking into a space launch. Wow.
1: So. The undergraduates, are you all from the same degree or is it people with a similar interest within the university who are undergraduates?
6: Mostly the unifying theme is an interest in space. It's almost all engineers. uh, We have a lot of electrical engineers who do the core work for building the circuitry. We have several computer programmers on the team who take care of the software and the operating system. And then we have a couple of of, uh, mechanical engineers like myself who take care of the structure and uh, the heat management and things like that.
1: And do you have a web presence online where people can have a look at what you're doing?
6: Yes, we do. We have a UNSW BlueSat website, which uh, bluesat.unsw.edu.au, and that provides most of the information about the ongoing project. We also have a Facebook page where we post updates as we move toward launch.
1: So should people look for BlueSat?
6: Yes, B-L-U-E-S-A-T, yeah. Awesome. Well, Stuart, thank you very much. Thank you. Hope to see you around.
1: 3D Printed Jewellery.
0: Hi, I'm Janelle Wilson of UNELA New 3D Printed Design and Fractal Design. And
1: you've made 3D printed jewellery?
0: Yes, I do lots and lots of computer design and um, get them printed by professional 3D printing laboratories because I like the really high resolution that they can obtain.
1: And what's the price of the 3D printers at the high end that you're using?
0: I believe um, in the hundreds of thousands, especially the direct metal is quite uh, a pricey machine.
1: And you you don't just print things directly to metal, you use some other techniques as well?
0: Yes, sometimes 3D printed in wax first and then cast in sterling silver. Um, Can also cast in gold and other precious metals from that lost wax process and selective laser sintered nylon also.
1: And I see there's a lot of biologically inspired designs here.
0: I love fractals and I like sea creatures. And so I'm, I'm inspired by that a lot too. And I like the way something very mathematical can wind up looking just like a seashell or just like a tree.
1: <laughs> I saw some that looked sort of like twisted vertebrae.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And if people want to look for your jewellery online or for your shop...
0: If they search UNELANU, which is U-N-E-L-L-E-N-U or UNELANU.com. It's it's plenty of designs on the internet and I do custom make as well.
1: Janelle, thank you very much. Thank you. Robots and Dinosaurs had tables with a huge array of amazing projects from their hackerspace.
7: G'day, I'm Gavin. I help run Robots and Dinosaurs, the Sydney makerspace and a club where people work on things.
1: And where is the makerspace?
7: We're in Gladesville and we meet on Saturdays and Tuesday evenings Um, and we have access to cool toys like 3D printers and laser cutters and interested in pretty much every hobby there is under the sun.
1: And what sort of things have you brought here to show people?
7: We have a lot of different projects. We've got some crocheted hexaflexagons. We've got some walking robots. We've got a wool carding machine and a spinning wheel that we made ourselves. We have a DNA copying machine. We have a marble maze. We have all sorts of stuff.
1: If people wanted to join the Gladesville Hackerspace, how would they do that?
7: Um, If you have a look on our website, robodino.org, we've got information there. And jump on the mailing list and say hello. Because people don't
1: have to have already made things to join. Uh, They can learn from the
7: other members? Absolutely. Anyone is welcome. Please come along and um, shoulder surf and get some ideas off people or bring along a project you've made and want to show off. We'd love to see it. Um, Or even if you don't have a project, just come along anywhere.
1: Gavin, thank you very much. Cheers. I'll be bringing you more interviews from the Sydney Mini Maker Fair next week. Look at diffusionradio.com for my gallery of photos from the fair. And now, Doctoring the TARDIS
3: by the Time Lords.
1: that's all from us this week on diffusion would you like to join us we need more people contributing stories to diffusion you can send your contributions opinions congratulations standing ovations gasps of amazement and helpful suggestions to science at diffusion that's science at diffusion and please do send me an email so i know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes please like our facebook page and leave a comment I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and to Triple H in Hornsby, Karengai. We're syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion is funded by the Fixed Income Bank of Ian, which lacks any kind of business model. Please contact me at science at to suggest a business model, help with applying for grants, or if you'd like to sponsor the show. Or look for the donate button on diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more Science Wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.